When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we're going to view fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. By 1642, Ming China had suffered a series of disasters. Floods and then drought had destroyed successive crops, setting the price of grain to astronomical levels. As one school teacher wrote, quote, there was no rice in the market to buy. Even if a dealer had grain, people passed by without asking the price. The rich were reduced to scrounging for beans or wheat, the poor for chaff or rotting garbage. Being able to buy a few pecks of chaff or bark was ecstasy. The Ming Dynasty collapsed two years later. Timothy Brook, in his latest book, The Price of Collapse, The Little Ice Age and the Fall of Ming China, points to a viral disaster as the spark that helped cause the Ming Dynasty to fall, relying on a history of surging prices to show how the over 275-year dynasty eventually fell to the Qing. Timothy Brooke is a professor history at the University of British Columbia and a fellow of the British Academy. His many books include Great State, Mr. Selden's Map of China, and Vermeer's Hat. Today, Tim and I talk about inflation in Ming China, how it connects to climate change, and how short-term environmental shocks can cause a market to break down. So, Tim, thank you for coming on the show today. You know, I want to start with, you know, maybe a basic question, which is, uh, why prices? How did you become so interested in prices, and what sources did you use in in search of kind of price data in price data in China? Well, Nicholas, let me answer that question by saying that the price of collapse wasn't the book that I ever thought I would be writing. I became interested in prices oh over twenty years ago when I was working on an earlier book, The Confusions of Pleasure, and I wanted to get a sense of what it felt to be living in the Ming dynasty. And one way of doing that was to try and get a sense of what people had to buy, what they had to afford, and whether they could afford to buy what they needed. So I started looking for prices uh, in the 1990s, and um, it was a very difficult process. There are no records of market transactions that we have for for Europe uh, during this period. But gradually, I began to discover there was a trove of prices hidden in local gazetteers. And these prices appear in the uh, list of disasters, uh, a section that, that, is, uh, that often appears at the end of a, toward the end of a gazetteer, recounting the fortunes and misfortunes that a county or a prefecture has gone through historically. And I began to find prices in these disaster lists. And the prices were um, unusual prices because they were not, it, it didn't say what was the price of grain. It said, what was the price of grain when disaster struck? So I began collecting this data and realized as I collected more and more disaster data that I wasn't getting the data that I would need to talk about what it cost to live in the Ming Dynasty. I was getting data that pointed to breakdowns in the the sort of the viability of the economy during the Ming Dynasty. And so 
because this became my best data set, uh, and it, it, it's odd that the best data set that I have for the Ming Dynasty are the prices to which grain rose during disasters, because this is not a, these are not normal prices. But this became my largest data set. I collected altogether 777 grain prices that were aberrant. And the pattern that emerged from this data was not so much what was it like to live during the Ming Dynasty, but what was it like to live through massive, um, massive crisis? And that in turn led me to questions of climate, because the periods when the prices rose to exorbitant levels, initially to about three times the normal level of the price of grain, but towards the end of the dynasty to tens and even hundreds of times normal prices, um, I began to realize that what my prices were going to tell me about was not so much what was it like to live during the dynasty, but what did how did the Ming experience what we know from European history as the Little Ice Age? And so through this process of collecting prices for one purpose, I ended up sort of diverting my interests to climate history. And that's what uh, the price of collapse is about. Well, you, you, so, so, so you talk about kind of how did China um, experience the Little Ice Age, um, at least as, as that's what it's called in Europe. Uh, I get the sense from the book that the answer was not well. Um, so could you, you know, what were the sorts of environmental catastrophes that happened during this period, especially during during that more intense period right near um, the the dynasty's collapse? Kind of how, how bad is the are the environmental shocks we're talking about? The environmental shocks were enormous and they got worse over time. The first round of environmental distress happens in the 1450s. And um, then there are uh, there are later surges of grain prices during during these these bad periods later on, but it's really uh, once we get down to the last six or seven years of the dynasty that we begin to see a scale of climate crisis that I don't think China had ever experienced in its entire history and has not ever experienced since the 1640s on this scale. The main issue was drought combined with cold. Now, uh, drought is easy enough to detect from sources because uh, writers at the time will say it hasn't rained for months, the crops are withering in the field. Cold is a little harder to detect because most observers writing at the end of the Ming didn't really observe uh, didn't connect colder temperatures with crop failures. But um, we now understand very clearly that the life of a grain plant is dependent both on temperature and on precipitation. And the more I dug around in sources of the Ming Dynasty, the more I began to notice references to things like snow falling out of season or uh, the Grand Canal freezing solid in the winter. Um, and these are not phenomena that the observers at the time linked directly to, 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 to crop failure. But as a historian writing in 2023, and I'm looking back, I can see that um, it was cold 
and drought that were afflicting China. Now, in this regard, China and Europe are a little bit different. Um, uh, the great French historian Leroy Ladurie, in his in his study of the Little Ice Age from several decades ago, points out that the Little Ice Age. Europe experienced the Little Ice Age in terms of colder temperatures, but in terms of also of excessive precipitation. Now, we get that occasionally in China, and this trans then translates into floods that wash away the crops from the fields. But, um, but it's, it's, a, it's an intriguing difference between the two ends of Eurasia. So in Europe, U- Europeans had an economy that was able to weather excessive rainfall better than the the Chinese economy uh, could weather drought. And so drought becomes the more serious problem in China. Uh, The crops dry out in the fields, they die, there is nothing left to harvest. So although the the Little Ice Age manifested itself differently at the two ends of Eurasia, the uh, experience that Chinese had in this period, uh, particularly in the 1630s and 1640s, but also in the 1580s and the late 1610s, uh, parallel very closely the experiences that Europeans were suffering um, during this period. And uh, it got bad. I haven't been able to estimate um, how many people were affected, um, nor have I, do I have any data that, that tells us how many people died of starvation. But certainly during the very last period in the late 1630s and 1640s, people were dying in enormous numbers. There are reports in some local gazetteers that in some villages, nine out of 10 households stand empty. Everyone has died, partly through starvation, but also partly through pandemics that get going under the pressure of the environmental collapse that that China was experiencing. So these were extreme times. And um, I, as a historian, find this, uh, I found this very instructive. And the reason I ended up writing this book, it's not to say that the Ming dynasty collapsed because of climate crisis, But it is to say that you can't narrate the fall of the Ming dynasty if you don't bring climate into the picture. Because without climate, you end up resorting to sort of moral arguments about, oh, the failure of local elites, the failure of administrators, the failure of the emperor. And this was very much how the the new regime in the Qing dynasty tried to narrate the fall of the Ming. They tried to impress upon Chinese people that the Ming the Ming failed, and it failed because of human error. But with the data that I've been able to pull together on, on grain prices during these disasters, this was not a matter of human error whatsoever. This was a matter of climate disaster. So how, how bad did inflation actually get during this time? You mentioned in your, in your first answer that, you know, prices would go up by tens, if not hundreds of times. Um, I guess, I guess, what was the actual scale of the of of the price increases, and what did that do for markets? You get the sense in the book that markets kind of just just completely broke down in places. Mm-hmm. Well, the um, initially the 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 early uh, climate crises in the 15th century drive prices up about four times their natural level. Now, this doesn't sound 
huge perhaps to us, but if you're a peasant household living sort of just at the at the margin of subsistence, uh, if you're not growing your own grain, but you have to buy it for the price of your food to quadruple um, becomes a major crisis. Now, um, the early rounds of uh, climate crisis are not marked by widespread death. So most people, it seems, are able to survive these price surges that happened in the mid 1400s, uh, late 1400s, mid 1500s. There's there's not widespread death, but there is widespread poverty. And perhaps it, it expresses itself mostly in not in so much in people dying, but people fleeing the places where they live in the hope of being able to find another place where the, the, where the conditions are a little bit better for agriculture and where they can possibly survive. So, um, but it's when we get starting in the late 1580s, coming again in the late 1610s, and then in the late 1630s, prices are going to levels hundreds of times what they should be, to the point at which no one can afford the grain. Now, um, one of the problems with this data is that uh, the, the prices that are recorded in the local gazetteers, uh, I've got no evidence to say those are the actual prices at which anybody was buying grain. The prices are often a way of dramatizing the scale of the crisis such that um, the reader is going to be shocked to know what the price of grain was. And the reader will then understand that no one could afford these prices. These prices were absolutely unaffordable. And therefore, that most people in the areas that were, that were worst hit could not afford to buy the food they needed in order to survive. So the um, what this meant for poor Chinese households is that they were exposed to a degree of impoverishment and starvation that was in their own terms, unimaginable. And um, even the wealthy were, were lucky if they could squeak by through, through these crises. So um, it's particularly from the 1580s through to the 1640s, this is the period when, uh, when grain prices become utterly unaffordable to most people in China. So, you know, one thing that 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 struck me in kind of reading your book and, and reading not just the, the the inflation part, but kind of the other the other historical details as well, is that it sounds a lot like a, a normal economy in ways. I mean, you have, as you note, you have all these gazettes going around talking about prices um, in in your chapter on um, the Ming Dynasty approach to trade. Uh, you have all these Chinese officials in, in the South using all the same free trade arguments that, that people in Europe would use at, you know, maybe a century or so later, talking about productivity and specialization and, and getting, you know, ex- exporting surplus and all that stuff. Um, so, so how much could we, how much can we actually see Ming Dynasty China as an economy in the way that we kind of understand that term today? Hmm. Well, Nicholas, I think this is a very good question. Uh, Normally, when we look at pre-industrial economies, we like to speak in terms of a uh, a socio-economy so that the economy doesn't sort of stand alone as something that can analyze, but it's part of a kind of social structure. 
However, in China, one of the one of the effects of the Confucian tradition is that officials understand that their duty is to make sure that the people are able to survive. And this is where the modern Chinese word for economy, jingji, comes from. It's used in the Ming as a way of, uh, jing has to do with kind of ordering conditions such that um, a kind of normal economy can function. And ji has to do with providing uh, support where that support is necessary when the people are not able to survive. So the idea of an economy in the Chinese term of Jingji is one, one that the Ming state takes fairly seriously. Now, it's not that anyone in Beijing is, is thinking as we would today in sort of economic terms, but they recognize that their responsibility is to keep the people alive and to provide the people with conditions that will allow them to reproduce themselves and to meet their tax burdens. And so in a sense, um, I would say that 16th century China is a little bit ahead of the European nations in terms of thinking about the viability of the economy and the importance of that. And th this is intensified as we get to the, towards the end of the Ming. The scale of disaster is growing, but at the same time, opportunities for foreign trade are also growing as more Japanese, Southeast Asians, and Europeans are starting to come into the waters around China seeking to trade. And so... Um, some officials are arguing quite actively that um, the Ming should accommodate foreign trade, not try and restrict foreign trade, because foreign trade will then allow people to earn money that they might not otherwise be able to earn in an economy that is, is, is stricken with, with climate crisis. Um. I want to get into another um, topic you talk about in your book, uh, which is which is the theory that um, the theory that 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 blames Spanish silver for for inflation. Um, and I wonder if you might kind of get into that. I mean, first of all, what what is this theory? What what is this theory that 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 I guess the discovery of silver in the New World helps helps spark global inflation? And then I guess I guess more importantly, why why do you think it's wrong? Well, the, the book, uh, you're, you're referring here to chapter, the book has five chapters, and it's the middle chapter, chapter three, in which I address this. This is more an issue for economic historians of Ming and Qing China, but I found it such an interesting perspective on what's going on in the late Ming that I decided to bring it into the book. Um, one of the arguments that has been made, uh, oh, was maybe as early as the 1980s when I was a graduate student, was that there was an increasing volume of global trade happening through the late 16th, early 17th century. The Spanish are importing vast amounts of silver to the Philippines, which is then being traded into China. At the same time, the Japanese are exploiting their own silver deposits and um, using their silver to buy Chinese commodities. In a way that, that, that and, and I think the argument, at one level, the argument is very good. A global economy is beginning to emerge. That is, merchants in Europe 
take silver from the Americas, move it to Asia in order to buy Chinese commodities, which are then taken back to the Americas and taken back to Europe and sold and profits are made and so forth. But um, one um, element of that argument that I, I, I don't uh, agree with so much is that the volume of silver was such that it started to distort the Chinese economy. Um, a lot of silver was in motion. I, I'm not going to give you some any figures off the top of my head. But that silver didn't um, have quite the impact on the Chinese economy that some of the first enthusiasts of this theory said it had. The Chinese economy in this period is a large one, so that even though silver is coming in in the millions of kilograms over several decades, this is not enough to distort prices within the economy. And when, and when I went specifically to try and figure out, well, where is the silver going? What is the silver that's coming into the country? What's it buying? Um, all I could come up with was um, the luxury market, art and antiques. That's where the silver was being diverted to so that people were paying extraordinary prices for famous paintings. But the, 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 the silver coming in from outside was not forcing up food prices. And this became, became an issue for me because many people who work on the Qing economy go back and look at prices in the 1630s and say, ah, those are the prices, those are the normal prices um, in this period. And then they build forward into the Qing and saying, well, there was mild inflation from the late Ming to the Qing. But what, they're fail what, what these scholars fail to realize is the prices that they're citing from the late Ming are, are, are extraordinary prices. And that, these, that once you set those prices in relationship to price surges for food through the Ming Dynasty, you realize this, this doesn't have anything to do with silver coming in from outside. This has to do with the fact that there is simply not enough food. And so the price of food is rising to prices that no one can afford. And that's the, that's the other important thing to bring into this, um, this, this uh, idea. And that is that it's not that the people of the Ming had lots of silver. And so they went out and spent huge amounts of silver on grain during crises. The fact is most people had, had no silver that they could use in order to survive the, the, the climate crises that they were experiencing. So, um, but I, I include the chapter in the middle of the book because it, I think it helps the reader understand what's the larger global context here? Why are Europeans out and trading? What's the impact on Europe? And, and the, the original model for this is, is a model that's based on um, the in inflation and crises in the European economy in the 17th century that is thought to be due to the influx of silver from the Americas. And that theory has been pretty much disproven by economic historians. So I'm sort of borrowing that revision from European history and applying it to China as well. Um, <clears throat> I will briefly say it's, at least for me, it's kind of funny. Um, I, in, in my day job, I work as a business journalist. And so... Uh, Talking about the was it talking about the luxury sector in China, and uh -huh. referring to the luxury sector in China four hundred years ago, uh -huh. um, you know thing, things things don't change that much, I guess. Um, um, well, I guess not. No. Well, I mean, okay. So, um, I, I do. I mean, I, I do want to ask ask this question. Um, you know, I think I think you're. 
you're making you're making the point that that the um, that you can't explain the the Ming Dynasty's collapse without reference to uh, to all of these environmental disasters. I mean, do you see do you see kind of around this as like as like the do you see these disasters as like the short term or the proximate cause that caused the Ming Dynasty to fall apart? Um, could the Ming Dynasty have plotted along for for decades or even centuries more if if, if the Little Age had not happened? How, how in in terms of the if you have to kind of put a weighting on how much uh, the environmental disaster um, is responsible for the Ming Dynasty's collapse, kind of how much weight would you put on it? This is a, a tough question, and I, I don't really address it as clearly as I should in the book. Most of these environmentally desu- de- induced um, food crises are short-term. They last a couple of years, and the question is, does China have enough grain in storage? Does it have the capacity to move grain from areas that are not stricken to areas that are stricken? And I think that the fact that the Ming lasted um, almost almost three centuries is evidence that the Ming regime was pretty good at responding to short-term crisis so that the, the, the dynasty does not fall. Um, I mean, in, in the 1450s, which is the first major um, um, environmentally induced crisis at the, uh, during what's called the Spurer Minimum, um, the emperor is captured by the Mongols in 1449. It precipitates a constitutional crisis that could have caused the dynasty to collapse in the 1450s, but the dynasty did not collapse. And this, this, this is repeated again and again, so that as the next crisis comes, uh, there it's a difficult period, but the dynasty is pretty much able to weather, uh, weather the storm until we get to the 1630s and 1640s. And then it's, I mean, to call it a short-term crisis is a bit of an exaggeration because it's really from about 1637 to 1647, that decade is probably the worst decade of climate crisis that China has ever had to go through. And from a longer perspective, that does look like a short-term crisis. But and even though the Chinese, the Ming state had developed uh, granary systems and transportation systems and had had policies in place to respond to uh, food crisis events, it was beyond the capacity of the Ming state to respond effectively in a way that is going to to keep the, 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 to, to keep the Ming going now. And, and the, the narrative of the Ming is usually, well, the Manchus are rising beyond the great wall. They're a powerful military force. China's sort of caught in its crises and the Manchus just come across the great wall and conquer China. But of course it wasn't that simple because the, 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 the regime is severely threatened in the, starting in the 1620s by peasant rebellions, particularly in the Northwest. And it's these rebellions that lead to the Chongzhen emperor's suicide in 1644, and that then paves the way for the Manchus to come in. So the fall of the Ming is a complex set of events 
But I would argue that those events would have not un- would not have unfolded in the way in which they did were it not for the climate crisis of the 1630s and 1640s. And and I guess it's a, maybe it's a slightly uncomfortable point to raise, but is it, it doesn't quite matter how good your state is, how good your governance is, if you go through a decade's worth of environmental crisis that causes the price of food to spike by 100 times. Exactly. That's that's exactly the case. I mean, I think the Ming did uh, did I I would say the Ming did remarkably well to survive for close to three centuries, but once it, it once it 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 it, it was was overwhelmed by the climate crisis of the 1630s and 1640s. Um, even the Ming wasn't able to respond. Now, the emperor may not have been the most brilliant emperor of the dynasty. His officials may have not been the most selfless and disinterested and competent. And yet the emperor was surrounded by a lot of very competent people who were trying to arrange food supply policies, military policies, and we're trying to carry them out in a, in, a, in a practical way in order to keep the dynasty afloat. But in the end, um, the regime ran out of resources. It, it just could not afford to continue to exist. And so it, it collapses under the weight of peasant rebellion and foreign invasion. You know, um, this is a, <laughs> I guess, a, not quite a comfortable segue, but... Uh, but um, you know, I think it's it's impossible to talk about environmental damage um, or environmental, environmental crises in the past without talking about climate change today. Um, you know, climate change during the Ming Dynasty, well, or Ming Dynasty really did seem to, to break the food market, I think, almost entirely. Um, you know, and, and while things aren't quite so dire today, uh, we are seeing things like climate change already breaking things like the home insurance market in Florida and California, where insurers are like, it just doesn't make economic sense for us to do this anymore. So the market just completely breaks down. Um, you know, how, how, I, I guess from looking at Ming China, kind of, what, what, what do we learn about, about, I guess, rapid inflation, rising costs, environmental damage, and how that can break markets? Well, we have to remember, of course, that the conditions under which the Ming collapsed are different than conditions today. That is, uh, food, supp- uh, food is supplied differently. Food supply is a global matter. Um, but if there's if there's anything to learn, well, there's a couple of lessons to learn. One is that um, now that we operate on uh, on a truly global a level as a, as a world economy, we need to ensure that food supply is not compromised by other factors. So that's, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that um, food has to be available to, um, to, all, uh, to all national economies within the global economy if we're to avert uh, a, 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 a serious environmental crisis that that affects food supply. And I mean, we're, we're seeing bits of this in economies all over the world. Crops that once flourished are no longer as flourishing or crops that grew at uh, right at sea level um, are now threatened by uh, rising, rising uh, sea levels and so forth. So um, if, there's, if there's anything to be learned here, it's that 
we need states to put into place institutions that will protect people through periods of the worst climate disaster and that will be able to, uh, from which people will be able to build back uh, their economic capacities. And um, this, this only perhaps underscores a point that I often like to make, which is that historians write in the present. I wrote this book in 2022, 2023. So if I wouldn't have been writing this book in the 1980s, I wouldn't have been writing it even in the 1990s. But now that we're in the 2020s, the, 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 the crisis of, uh, of, of climate change and the threat to food supply and the threat to, if you like, to political stability and not just the stability of populations, but the stability of political systems. I mean, those, those threats are now serious. And so I'm, if, if I've written The Price of Collapse today, it's because I live in a world in which these concerns are front and center. And um, it's not that I've it's not that I'm trying to shoehorn Ming China into a presentist kind of uh, preoccupation, but it's that living in the times in which we do, it's made me alert to the conditions under which the people of the Ming lived. And um, it allows us to, to take a longer view, I think, of what the relationship is between climate change and human society. And that's what I've tried to show in this book. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Timothy Brook, author of The Price of Collapse, Little Ice Age, and The Fall of Ming China. Tim, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but, but all of your work. And what's next? What do you think the next project might be? Well, I've, I first sketched out some of these climate ideas in a book I published uh, about 10 years ago called The Troubled Empire. It's part of a series I edited for Harvard University Press on the history, uh, six-volume history of late imperial China, in which I wrote the volume on the Yuan and Ming dynasties. And that's where I first um, started thinking about these issues most directly. And I think it was it was writing that book that then led me uh, to writing the price of collapse, um, my next work uh, actually the the next book I think that I will be publishing has to do with the evolution of um, statecraft in the middle of the Ming Dynasty. That is the evolution of the policies that were regarded to be the best policies to adopt in the face of external threats or internal collapse or food shortage or floods or whatever. So, so I've become interested in the, in the institutions that go back at least to the Ming dynasty and even further back, the institutions by which the Chinese state was able to, to some extent, to respond to, to climate disaster. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to asiareviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and newbooksnetwork.com. 
We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, Joyce for an interview with Agnes Chu, author of Eternal Summer of My Homeland. But before then, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, Nicholas, it's, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.